Hebrews 1. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for your word spoken to us through your son. We, we praise you for him and we praise you for his word. And Lord, we ask that as we consider him and what your word says about him this day, Lord, you would, you would make him ever more um, buried deeper into our hearts and minds, that he might be in our thinking and in our speaking day by day. May we know who he is and may we know the privilege that we have to be in him. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Amen. So, Hebrews 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so we, last time, were teetering off midway through verse 2, and that's where we pick up. We've seen the contrast, how in, in the old, previously, there was these uh, spotted, occasional, various communications to the fathers and the prophets. And these days, in the new covenant, we have the revelation of Christ, the one who makes everything different and who changes everything from what it was. And now, as we uh, press on, we're considering what the writer here tells us about that son. We touched briefly on the first of the things here, um, but we'll come back to it now. Um, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And we, two weeks ago, spent time comparing um, the prologue of Hebrews to the prologue of John and uh, the hymn of Colossians. So I don't want to belabor the point, but the inheritance, the, uh, the giving of all nations to the Son was spoken of in Psalm 2. We looked at that uh, a little while back, a couple of weeks ago. And in Psalm 2, it is him who is the heir of all things. It is the Son who is given all things. He is the one uh, who will end up ruling, <coughs> reigning, and has been given that position. This is the constant theme of Scripture. We've seen this in our studies in Daniel. We've seen it in our studies in Ephesians. We've seen it in our studies in Philippians. This is this, one of the central themes, <coughs> pardon me, of the whole of Scripture, <coughs> that Jesus will <coughs> inherit all things. We believe that when time comes to an end, it will come to an end with a new heavens and a new earth, that there will not be this um, disbodied future where we'll, you know, in, in popular mythology where we're, we're kind of like these non-bodied beings yet we have angel wings and we flutter around heaven <coughs> and these weird ideas that come from who knows where. You know, there is, um, there was someone who, a child and who'd been in the press this week, and I don't want to touch on the case, but he died, and as he died, his parents made some reference to their angel having wings. And it, it just kind of was, was grieving to me that there's this such deep misunderstanding. 
And I believe because he was so young, there will be a day when that child whose body failed him will, though he is now without body, will one day have a body. And will one day be there in human form, reigning and ruling with Christ, where the whole earth is filled with his glory. That's our future. And Christ is the one who is going to be in control. And we shall be with him. So we talked about that a little bit last time at the last phrase that we really didn't deal with much at all. And so it, it says, through whom he created the whole world, uh, sorry, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So that points us to the end of all time. And through whom he created the world. And that obviously points to the beginning. And that contrast we made, but let's speak a little bit more about that. There's the parallel here with John's prologue. That Christ is the one through whom God created the world. He was not created, he was creator. He is the one who created everything. He is the one who will rule and reign at the end, and he is the one who was in glory and brought about creation at the beginning. And so he encompasses all of time, and more so, he is the creator of time. Well, there's a fascinating thing here, in that there is a, in the Bible we come across the word world a lot, you know, do not love the world, do not be friends with the world, and you know, the, 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 you know for God so loved the world, world comes up a lot, and it's typically the Greek word cosmos, where we get our word cosmology from. But here, it's a different word. It doesn't mean world, literally, it means ages. He's the creator of all ages. And I think in our modern era, with the understandings that we have of physics that perhaps we didn't have, uh, you know, centuries past, maybe a good way of translating this would be creator of time. Now, I'm, I'm no scientist, and I don't really understand these things very well at all, but I do know that that one of the things that Einstein showed us was that time was something that was physically affected. And I won't say much more than that, otherwise I'm going to probably get it wrong. But the scientists who know better will probably know that it gravity and what have you. But it's something that it's physically created, and when physical situations are different, then, then time can go at essentially a different speed. And so when God created the physical universe, he created time. And, and this is something I can never get my head around. It wasn't just that in the beginning that God existed, and that he existed time going back and going back, but that there was a point where time began, and he created it. Do, do we say that he existed before time? Do you have a before, before this time? Is the, word is the phrase before time a contradiction? Because the word before implies time? You see, I'm, I'm, I'm getting lost already. But what I know is this, that God is so far beyond our capability of understanding that the very basis of life as we know it, time moving moment by moment, he created the whole process. The, the more so than as the creator of time, he's the creator of all ages. He is the creator of the universe, the heavens and the earth, and how things existed in the beginning. He is the creator of the world and the various eras and dispensations that the world has gone through. When Adam and Eve were in the garden enjoying fellowship 
with God. God created that age. When Adam and Eve fell and brought sin into the world and distanced humanity from God, God created that age. And when Christ came to pay the price for sin, God created that age too. And the age that is to come is the handiwork of God as well. Christ is the one who created the world in the beginning, created time in the beginning, and he is the one, as, as Colossians says, who holds it all together, moment by moment and day by day. There's nothing here that isn't in God's perfect control and holding. So the Son who has spoken to us, you see how in these first two verses he's contrasted the speaking of the Son with the speaking of the prophets. And how did creation happen? God said, let there be light. And there was. And so when God through Christ creates the world, he does so through speech, hence Christ being the word. The word is the one who brings about creation. He's the one who speaks. And so when we have the prophets, as we spoke about last time, where we have God speaking to this middleman who can then communicate on to the people, now we have the son. Now we have the one who is the word. Now we have the one whose word created the world. The, the issue of superiority is just overflowing here. That in the past God dealt with these people, the prophets, but now he has son, the creator of all things, the inheritor of all things, and the one who is superior in every way. And so he speaks about this one who encompasses all of time in verse 3. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so um, we have here, and this is... I don't know how much detail to give you without getting lost, but this is, I'm trying to give you little snippets of just how cleverly constructed this four, these four verses are. But notice how he mentions the creation of the world, which remember began, let there be light, and the word. We've got all of these elements in. Here's the word being mentioned again. Okay, the word of his power. And the light here is referenced when he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now this word radiance, I spent probably far too much time looking at that this week. It's a, it's a confusing word because it's only ever used in the Bible in this one point. So it's always tricky to get an understanding of it. But it can mean two things. It can mean just radiance of light coming directly from a source. Or it can also mean light coming from a reflection, so indirectly. So it is the shining of light whether directly or indirectly. And clearly, for Christ, he is the light of the world. But there is a sense here of reflection as well, because you see in the next phrase, he is the exact imprint, the, uh, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his, that's God's nature. So he is the, the imprint of the Father. He reflects the Father's glory. 
and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But with regards to light, Christ is the one who brings light into darkness. So in the beginning, let there be light. Christ brought that light into existence. He is the one who created. And so when sin comes into the world, the first mention of provision for sin is right there after the fall in Genesis 3, where there is a promise of the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is this thread, this theme that runs through Scripture. And we're told more and more about him. We're told that this one who is descended from woman will also be descended from Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and then through the family tree of David. We're told that this one will not just be the seed, but he'll be a stump. We're told that he will be a righteous one. We're told that he will be a suffering servant, a king. He will be both God and, both, and he will be man as well. And he comes to be light into the darkness of the sinful world that we have before us. And the prophets aren't radiant. The prophets reveal things, but they're not the radiance of God's glory. And, and this is the point that I think the writer is making here as he links these things together. He's saying, look, the glory of God, the glory of God in the heavens, the glory of God that shines, the glory of God that Moses was told, you can't look at me in the face or you'll surely die. That glory of God shines from Christ. One thing I am constantly reminded of as we go through these scriptures is just how privileged we are. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us again and again and again and again through the book. He's like, why would you want to go back to the old covenant? Do you not see how much better we are now? Do you not see how much better things are in Christ? Do you not see how much more superior Christ is? Moses longed to see God. Moses longed for people to have the Spirit. And we have access to God in a way that even Moses didn't. And the radiance, the glory of God shines through Christ. And see this connection here. And the exact imprint of his nature. So he is the imprint the carbon copy, if you like, of the nature of the character of God. Now, we did skim this briefly when we looked at John's Gospel two weeks ago, but I want to spend just a little more time here. In so keep your finger, your ribbon, bit of paper, whatever, in, in Hebrews, and let's turn to John 1. Because, because I want us to understand what's being said here. And really, if I had time, we'd go back to Exodus as well, but I'm hoping you're familiar enough with the story from, from my constant harping on about it. But there's Moses who wants to see, um, wants to see the glory of God. He, he's seen the glory of God more than anybody else. Maybe we should read it. Go on, let's read it. You've got lots of fingers, haven't you? Or you can just listen if you don't want to turn. But I'm going to turn to Exodus uh, 34. And then I'll go back to John, and then I'll go back to Hebrews. So in Exodus 34, when uh, in, in chapter 33, Moses has said, show me your glory. Please, he says, show me your glory. 
And I'm, I'm, I'll read this a little bit. This is the end of, end of 33, uh, verse uh, 18 and 19. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I'll be gracious to whom I'm gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, I'm God and I'm sovereign. If I want to show grace to someone, I show grace to them. I want to save them, I'll save them. If I'm going to condemn them, I'm going to condemn them. I will do as I wish because I'm God. And when you see my glory, when you see the radiance of my glory, he says, you will see my name. When I proclaim my glory, when I see my glory, I proclaim my name. Seeing the glory of God is seeing his name. And remember, his name is his character, his nature, who he is, what he does, his attributes. That's the name of God. And the idea, and we mustn't lose this link, the idea is, is that when we see God's glory, we get who he is. Okay? And then God says, but you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. But the Lord says, Behold, there's a place where you stand on the rock, and when my glory passes you by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. How is he protected from the glory of God that would kill him? He gets this glimpse, a glimpse of his back, but he can't see his face or he'll die. The glory of God, the holiness of God is so great that man could not see it. So how was man protected? By the rock. The rock is Christ. And so, a little bit later on in chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So Yahweh descends, and he, he meets with Moses, and he proclaims his name. That means, he, he doesn't, mean, doesn't mean that there's this cloud passing by going, Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. That's not what it means by proclaiming his name. What it means is, is that when God revealed himself, Moses understood him. He understood who God was. He understood, he saw, this is who God is because of the radiance of his glory. And so the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's two Hebrew words there that come together that speak of the faithfulness and the love of God in him keeping his covenants with his people. That God is the one whose faithful love can be relied upon in all circumstances. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so it goes on, and there's some letter details there that are relevant to the old covenant. But God is the one who condemns sin, and God is the one who forgives sin. God is the one who gives grace. God is the one who gives mercy. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is slow to anger. Who God is was seen by the revealing of the radiance of his glory. Does everybody understand that? That's our background in Exodus, okay? So, 
Moses sees the glory of God, this bright, shining, radiant, brilliant glory of God. And in doing so, there is this connection with the revealing of God's name and his character and who he is, and specifically his grace, his mercy, and his covenant-keeping love. Now let's move to John, John 1. In John 1, we're told early on that Jesus was the, the light of men. The light shines in darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. That's why I had Shawnee read from John 8 today, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So now we have the light, the radiance, coming into the world in Christ. And then he says this amazing thing. Verse 14 of John 1. The word, see all the connections here for the Hebrews, the word, the word became flesh so he always was, but a point in history, he becomes human, he becomes flesh, and he dwelt, not the regular word for dwell that's used in John, but literally he tabernacled amongst us. He became, he had, his body was a covering for the glory of God, like the tabernacle. And we have seen his glory. This is a direct allusion to Moses. Moses sees the glory of God, and what does Moses know? Moses knows who God is. Jesus comes, the glory of God, tabernacled in human flesh, and John says, those of us who are with him, we saw his glory. This is crucial to the whole point I keep telling you, which is there's no transfiguration in John's gospel even though John was there. Because John is trying to show us that the revelation of God's glory is seen through the character of Christ, showing that he is in nature the same as God. Glory as of the only Son, see the link there again with Hebrews, he's the Son, from the Father, that's one of the reasons why I think radiance might be implying a reflection here, the Son's glory coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the term grace and truth here is a translation, most likely, of the Hebrew terms, meaning steadfast love and faithfulness that we saw in Exodus 34. He's pointing us to Exodus 34. He's saying that Jesus came with all the glory of God. It was tabernacled in human flesh, but that tabernacle did not see, stop John from seeing that glory because Jesus revealed the character of God. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one who has said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John bore witness to Jesus, who came from the beginning. Now, this is where the, the argument continues. Verse 16. And from his fullness, there's the deity of Christ right there, by the way. If Christ is full of grace and truth, then he has the most of anybody. That makes him God. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace, literally grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace came to the people through Moses who gave them grace. What Moses did in bringing the law, in bringing the covenant, gave them grace. But there's greater grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, a superior revelation. In other words, he's contrasting with, having pointed us to Exodus 34, he's contrasting with Moses now. He's saying, look, Moses saw the glory of God, and he saw who God was, and he had a covenant that revealed the nature of God, which was a blessing and grace to the people. 
But Jesus has come with the fullness of grace and truth. And Jesus has come in fullness with a new covenant, and he has revealed the glory greater than Moses was able to see the glory of God. The revelation of God's glory is superior here now. And look at this last verse. This is where if you have a King James or a New King James, you're going to be at a hindrance because uh, the, the, the textual background's not quite as accurate here. But, so listen to my version. It says, no one has ever seen God. Exodus 34, or Exodus 33 rather. No man shall see me and live. No one's ever seen God. There's the problem. He's wrapping up the argument here from these verses. No one's ever seen God. But the only God... The begotten God, who is at the Father's side, so there is a God who is at the Father's side. So no one's ever seen God, no one's ever seen God, but yet there is a God who's at the Father's side. There's someone distinct from the Father, next to the Father. And this only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. In other words, you don't get to see the Father directly because you'll die. But you get the reflection of Christ. And if you've seen Christ, you have a perfect reflection and you've seen the Father because they are one. Christ is God. Do you see what, what's going on there in that whole argument? So I want to put these pieces together now and then bring them back to Hebrews 1. Okay? Because of sin, the glory of God would kill man. No man can see the glory of God and live. And we saw in Exodus that the revelation of the glory of God, the shining, the radiance of the glory of God, was something that revealed the character of God, the nature of God, and who he was. Then in John 1, John takes that principle and he says, for us, we see the glory of God because we see Christ. And when we see Christ, we see God. We see all of God. We see the fullness of grace. We see the fullness of truth. We see the fullness of the covenant-keeping, faithful God. Everything that the Father is with regards to grace, with regards to truth, with regards to faithfulness, with regards to love, Christ is. He is perfect because he is separate person, one God. Now with all of that, we look at Hebrews and we see how the writer of Hebrews is using the same ideas as John was when he combines the radiance of glory with the exact imprint of his nature. What he's doing is he's linking, as Exodus does, he's linking the glory of God shining with the revealing of God's character. And with John 1.18, he's linking all of that with Christ, as Christ being the one who reveals that glory. So the radiance of the glory of God is Christ, and the imprint of his nature. So when Christ shines forth, we see God in Christ. Now, why is that so important? Because for us, we get to experience the glory of God when we look at Christ, 
when we look at who he is, when we look at what he's done for us, we are basking in the radiance of the glory of God. Our lives need to be captivated by Jesus, by who he is, by what he's done. We, we live in this world with a, with a hustle and a bustle. And, and there's, there's things going on, and we've got to work, and we've got to, we've got to do this, and we've got to-do lists, and we've got this and that going on, and we're interacting with people, and there's all of these things in the world around us. And there's, there's kind of media and social media, and there's all of these things. And, and none of it is real. There's Isaiah kind of going about his life, and he's given this vision of the glory of God, and he goes, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees the glory of God, and the reality, the reality of who God is stops him in his tracks, and suddenly his whole life is transformed and changed. If our life is a constant stream of the world, what people here think, what they say, what they feel, you know, all of these, if that is our, if that's being drip fed into us 24-7, then we are ignoring the greatest privilege that any generation of humanity has ever had, which is the opportunity to bask in the radiance of the glory of God through our study of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Seeing the faithfulness of God through the faithfulness of Christ. Seeing the love of God through the love of Christ. Seeing the glory of God through the glory of Christ. Christians, we should be obsessed with Jesus. Surely we, like the audience that the writer is here writing to, surely we get distracted by the lesser and forget who it is that we have. And this one, who is God, shines, reflects his glory, reveals his character. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, it's not just that he got the ball rolling, it's that the word that said, let there be light and started everything off, that that word maintains the universe, maintains your universe, my universe. Too many years I've kicked against the goad, to use an old King James expression, that God uses of Paul, where, where we look at our lives and we say, I'm not happy with this and I'm frustrated by that. And we forget that everything is held together by him. By who? The one who is the radiance of the glory of God. The one who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He holds everything together. Do you, do you see how ridiculous it is for us to come to God and say, 
come into his presence of his glory and say, you're doing it wrong. This shouldn't be this way. That should be that way. I don't like what I'm going through here. I don't like... But yet, we come in his presence and like Isaiah, it's, well, it's me, I'm undone, who am I? See, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the deity, the, the radiance, the imprint. Every, every person will accept this one day. And we are as foolish as Peter, who when Jesus said, hey, Peter, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die. Peter said, no, you're not, don't be stupid, don't do that. And the text says that Peter rebuked Jesus. I confess far too many times in my life I've rebuked God for his sovereign control. I know I can confess that in safe company because I suspect you have to. The one who is the glory, the one who is the fullness of God, holds everything together. You see, the point of this verse is to make us just look at who he is and just go, wow. The point of this verse is for us to be distracted from the world by the glory of Christ, rather than be distracted from the glory of Christ by the world. And having said who he is, he now shifts and makes specific reference to what he's done. There's this lovely throwaway line here. After making purification for sins. The, the main verb here is, he sat down. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. He sat down, right? But just almost as just a little modifier, a little throwaway line at the front. After he's made purification for sins. Boy, he's going to talk about that in detail in this book. He's not, he might be skimming it now, but we're going to look at that in a lot of detail. But what he's saying here is that the one who holds everything together has purified us from our sins. And this is where we start to, you know, he's, go, he's told already in the first verse, old to new, old to new, and we're starting this theme going through, and so he's now starting to make reference to the system that was in place, the, the sacrificial system that allowed for purification from sin. And he says that Christ is the one who has purified us from our sin. And we'll see in a moment that this is kind of pushing now towards the priestly role of Christ one of the main themes of this book. But he made purification for our sins. Now just linking that back with what we've just been saying in the previous section. I hope this is helpful for you, this has been helpful for me. But when I'm struggling with God's sovereignty, and I don't mean struggling with the concept of it or the theology of it, what I mean is struggling with not rebuking him, him for his sovereignty, struggling with not saying, God, I'm not happy with this, or why does it have to be this way? The, the only place we can go is the cross. You see, John, John was talking, wasn't he, about the glory. We've seen his glory. The fullness of glory is seen in Christ. We've seen it. 
We've, we've seen the imprint of the nature of God in Christ. And yet John takes that word glory and he runs his three theme through the book. And as it goes through the gospel, there's that theme of glory. And when Judas goes out to betray Jesus, then Jesus says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross is where glory is seen most. Why? Because the character of God is most ably seen on the cross. And so for us, when we struggle with God and what he is doing, with a loved one who's sick, with circumstances that we don't want to endure, when we look at that, we need to look at the cross. And we need to say, the one who takes a sinner, an enemy, purifies his sin, indwells him by his spirit and redeems him. That one can be trusted. When you see the radiance of his glory, when you see that he is the character of God, you see that more than anywhere on the cross. And so when we struggle with him holding things together, we go to the cross. We, we take our minds and our hearts to the cross and we say, I don't understand why but I know who. I don't understand why we're going through this, but I know who you are. I see you. I see your glory. I see your love. I see your faithfulness. I see the character of God in you on the cross, and I trust you. That's all we can do. And so... The one who holds it together is the one who has made purification for our sin. And having done that, after making purification, what does he do? He sits down. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't think there is a specific physical location left and right, we, we, we try and visualize it. Sometimes it helps us to visualize, but I think we, we can overly literalize this. The point is, is that Christ has been given the place of glory beside the Father, as he was before. And Paul talks about him having a name above all names, and that's a similar kind of concept. But this idea and this imagery comes from Psalm 110, and I would like you to turn there with me. Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage that underlies the book of Hebrews more than any other Old Testament passage. We, we talked about just as numerous passages that are quoted and alluded to. And my goodness, I mean, have you seen what we've got coming up in chapter 1? Just quotation after quotation after quotation. And you know I'm going to be going back to those passages and we're going to be looking at them in context. So we're going to be taking our time going through these references um, in, uh, in Hebrews. But the, the one passage of the Bible that more than any other influences and affects Hebrews is Psalm 110. It's a messianic psalm. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. So there's someone who is their Lord that Yahweh is saying to that Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's sitting at the right hand. He has that place of glory 
and we're waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool. The last ones will be sin and death. He's conquered them. They're about to become footstools. The fathers just sent them to the upholstery place to make the footstool as it should be, as it were. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Notice his people have garments of holiness, holy garments. That's the purification of sin. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a phrase we're going to get very familiar with in Hebrews. We'll leave it till we get a little bit further along. But there's a little link to it here in the passage that we're in. But let's just keep going through this short psalm. The Lord, that's small letters, so that's the, the Lord reference, to, the second Lord reference in verse 1, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. When we think of all the names of Jesus, you know, King of Kings, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, we don't often think filler of corpses, do we? Yeah, there it is. He will come, he will defeat his enemies, because all earth will be his. All heaven and all earth will be his. God will make him to be the ruler. Now, notice here, the Lord will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we have in Psalm 110 is we have this messianic king that so much of the Old Testament looks towards. This messianic king is also a priest, and a priest specifically after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's come back to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. So, the purification that's referenced there in Psalm 110 is referenced here in Hebrews. And then we have this specific theme that's so central to Psalm 110. He sits down at the right hand of high. Now this is a link to the priesthood. You might not see it immediately, but it is. Because what happens with the uh, Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood from the line of Aaron, which was the Old Testament priesthood, what happened is that then when they were making, uh, doing their duties, that they would stand up. The priests would always be standing. Why would they be standing? Because the sacrifice was never complete. There was all, it was, it was, it was a, uh, uh, a picture, if you like, of the fact that they're going to be back again doing it again and again and again and again because there's sin and there's sin and there's sin so they'll be sacrificed and they'll be sacrificed and they'll be sacrificed and the work of the priests the priesthood was never done there were, it was just continuing year after year but this priest this one he makes purification for sin like the priests of old did but unlike the priests of old he sits down. When I finish teaching this morning, 
I'm going to walk away and I'm going to sit down. I'm not going to continue my sermon from a seat. There's no danger that midway through the last song, I'm going to, I'm going to start preaching again. Hold, hold on a second. Just, I hope you can hear me over the top of the music. I just want to make a couple more points. I've sat down because I've finished. It's that kind of picture that we have here. That the high priest has purified our sins, but unlike the previous priests, you see the old to new, you see the comparison, you see the better, you see prophets to son. Unlike previously, this one, after he's made purification, sits down. He does his work of priest and he sits down as king. And he will never stand again to do more purification. It's done. As he said on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's complete. This is why the concept of Roman Catholic Mass is an abomination. The idea that Christ is, their, their words, not mine, re-sacrificed each Mass, it's horrific. What a butchering of the Gospel. The idea that Christ was somehow insufficient on the cross and there needs to be a re-sacrificing in the breaking of his body each Sunday at Mass. But lest we be too quick to condemn, how often do we punish ourselves and condemn ourselves because we don't believe Christ's cleaning work to be sufficient? How often are we taken out of action through discouragement? How often do we cease to minister because we're down on ourselves? Oh, and it's so justifiable, isn't it? Oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so bad. Yeah, you are. Absolutely, I'm in agreement. But, God's anger against your sin has been appeased. Do you think that God poured out his wrath on Christ on the cross but kept a little bit spare for you because you're so bad? He poured it all out. Your sin is dealt with. It's been purified. Our high priest sits. He sits. It's done. You're clean. You're justified. You're righteous in your standing before God. And so, he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Father is there with the Son. Psalm 110. It points us to that Psalm. It points us to Christ being that priest king of Psalm 110. He is the son of Psalm 2. He is the one who has, will inherit all. And so, talking of that inheritance in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay? So let's follow the argument here. So, having become superior to the angels 
as the name he has inherited. So it's not that he, you know, one day Jesus was lower than the angels and then boom, he's, he's now superior to the angels. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would teach that, you know, he's kind of created and they're one of the angelic beings. No, no, no. What it's saying is this. He has become as superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, he, in his name, his character, is so much greater. That's what we've seen in the whole of his prologue. Look, look at the old system. Look at the prophets. Look at the, the Moses. Look at the angels. Look at all of these other things. Whether it's prophets, Moses, or angels, Jesus is superior. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the imprint of the nature of God. He is the one who purifies us from our sin. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The angels sit there? No. They're in the scene. They're in the throne room. But they don't sit at the right hand of the Father. They're not going to rule. They haven't made purification for sin. Do, do, do they have a bit of reflection of God's glory? Sure, we'll give them that. But they aren't the radiance of God's glory. They're not the full expression of who God is. Did Moses provide grace? Absolutely he did. Grace came through Moses, but not the fullness of grace that came through Jesus. He is so much more superior in his name, in his character, that he has shown himself to be above them in his deeds. He has proven who he is by his actions. He always was superior. His name always was superior. But you see, what's happened is, and this is Philippians 2 in a nutshell. Maybe we'll finish with, let's finish with Philippians 2. I never get bored of it. It's just one of those passages that's just, you know. Ugh. Next time you're struggling with life. Next time you're like, why God, why? Go to Philippians 2 again. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ, thinking like him, putting others before you. Yeah, that's the context. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had, he was God. He was superior already. No one's doubting that, no one's saying that. But look what happens to him. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, in all his glory, becomes man, and in obedience to the Father, the Son goes to the cross. It is the ultimate humiliation of all time. Therefore, you know, if, you've got, if, you, if you're one of these people that marks your Bible, highlights it, underlines it, scribbles in it, this should be highlighted, marked, underlined, scribbled. If you don't, keep it clean, that's fine. But for those of you who do, this is the key word, therefore. God has highly exalted him. It's because of his humbling of himself that God exalts him. He who had glory left it behind. He who had glory, the, the presence of God, he left that to reveal God's glory on the cross. And because of that, God exalts him. 
He has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Who Christ is, the name of Christ, is now greater because he has shown his character in the cross. That's what's being referenced here in Hebrews 1. That the Christ is so much greater than the angels. He has this name that is superior. It's being given to him because of what he's done. It is the humiliation. It is the, it is the cross. Therefore, God exalts him and gives him this great place of glory. So that the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, Sovereign, God, to the glory of God the Father. Old Testament saints, they couldn't see God. They couldn't see him. And so Christ comes. And now, every tongue will confess, I saw God. It was Jesus. I saw God in Christ. And the Father, who exalts that name, Jesus, above every other name, the Father, he is glorified through it. You see, in the Old Testament, the name above all names is Yahweh. But now there is a new name above all names, it's Jesus. And yet the Father is glorified by exalting that name above all other names. And so, what do we learn from all this? That we trust him. We trust him. He humbled his son greater than anybody else in history has ever or ever will be humbled. Therefore, he exalts him. When our life is humbling, when we are forced into situations and circumstances that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, when we, like Christ in Gethsemane, say, please take this cup from me, then we can also say, but not my will, but yours be done. Knowing and trusting that the one who humbles us will lift us up. The one who, who brings us to the valley will lift us to the mountaintop. Knowing that there is a direct correlation in our suffering and our future glorification. Because it's been done in Christ first. And this is the one. This is the one. To sum up, we live in an era of sun. We live in an era where the son of God, the son of man, the one who is both God and man, the one who will rule and reign, where God speaks through him, the one who shows his glory and his nature in, in completeness, the one who holds everything together, the one who has cleansed us from our sin, and the one who right now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, being given the name above all names because of what he accomplished. Because of his humiliation and his exaltation, he is now the name above all names. He is the one vastly superior. Why, oh why, oh why, would we be distracted from him? He is better. 
He's more exciting. He's more glorious. He's more wondrous than your favorite TV program, than your favorite pastime. And I'm not saying don't watch TV. I'm not saying that. I love watching shows. I'm not saying don't have hobbies and pastimes. I'm just saying Christ needs to be central. And life, he can get, he can get washed out. He can get, he can get pushed out by all the other demands and interests and, and all the things grabbing for our attention. But there is nothing more glorious than Jesus Christ. Should we again, together, today, commit to following him, to gazing on him, and to just generally being obsessed with him? There's nothing better, nothing better for our time, nothing better for our attention. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. All that he is. All that he's done. Father, we confess. We get distracted. We... We see other things, we do other things, we want other things. Father, tantalize us with your Son. Win us over with your Son. Captivate us with your Son. That he might be our all, our everything. May your Son be glorified. In our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen.